This morning, we're in the second wave of our message series that's laid out on my t-shirt this morning, No Perfect People Allowed. Over the next three Sundays, as we said, we're going to meet three individuals in the Bible who had issues, personal junk that most of us would expect to disqualify them from being used by God for anything that really matters. And yet God did significant things in them and through them. And as we study their lives, we're encouraged and reminded that God wants to and can still do significant things through each of us. This morning, every single one of us falls into one of two or both categories. Firstly, we need our faith to be encouraged. If you're feeling great about everything, then you know someone who needs their faith encouraged. And so I want to encourage you to tune in, let this encourage you, but also let it be a lesson to encourage others as the Lord gives you that opportunity. Today, we're going to look at one of the most storied men of the Bible, David. And we can't possibly cover his whole life because his whole life can only accurately be described as epic. So we'll focus on one part of his life this morning, perhaps the most salacious part. The greatest endorsement of David comes from the Lord himself who described him famously as a man after my own heart who will do all my will. That's quite an endorsement from God himself, a man after my own heart. Not only that, but if you were with us for our revelation study, then you know that when Jesus returns to the earth to reign during the millennium, he's going to reign from the throne of who? The throne of David in Jerusalem. Again, that's quite an endorsement. That's Jesus Christ telling us that David is, up to this point, the greatest king the world has ever had. It's David. It's Jesus telling us that David was a type of himself. That means there were aspects of David's life that prophetically foreshadowed the life and ministry of Jesus Christ himself. He was a prophetic pattern, and pretty much every Bible scholar is on the same page as far as that opinion goes. Jesus called John the Baptist the greatest man who ever lived, but Jesus may very well have loved David more than anyone who has ever lived. And that's incredible when you consider one of the catastrophic mistakes David made during his life. And that's the mistake we're going to look at this morning. If you haven't ever studied David's life, I commend that task to you. It's, it's a worthwhile study and it's absolutely incredible. Israel's first king, Saul, had become a train wreck. So the Lord tells his prophet Samuel that he's chosen the one who will become king after Saul. The Lord sends Samuel to a man named Jesse, and Samuel has Jesse line up his sons. Samuel goes through them all. They're strong, charismatic, dynamic young men and says, nope, 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 not you, not you, not you. The one God wants isn't here. Can you imagine the awkwardness of him going, do you maybe have any sons that you've forgotten? And Jesse says, oh yeah, I do have another son, actually. David, my youngest, is out taking care of the sheep. They bring David before Samuel, and Samuel is told by the Lord, this is the guy. And right there, Samuel anoints David as the next king of Israel. He says, you're going to be the next king of Israel. But David doesn't take the throne till years later. Much, much more happens before he actually ascends to the throne. Perhaps most notably, David faces the giant Goliath. Contrary to popular opinion, by this time in his life, David is not a little boy. He is a strong young man, at least in his late teens. How do we know? Because when he's going to face Goliath, he has a conversation with King Saul, and he says to Saul, I've already killed a bear. I've already killed a lion. Goliath is just what's next. 
It's not a five or six year old boy that's killed a lion or a bear with his bare hands. David is a seasoned warrior by this time. He famously declines Saul's armor, not because it's too big for him, but because it's going to restrict his movement. He's going to attack with a sling and you don't wanna be in constricting armor when you do that. Many of you know the story. David is deeply troubled by the fear of his countrymen and the Philistines mocking of the Lord. So he goes out to face Goliath with total confidence in the Lord. He has five smooth stones, not because he thinks he might miss, but because we learn later that Goliath has four more brothers. And David says, I got a stone for each of them too, if they're next. David kills Goliath and quickly becomes legendary throughout Israel. He's the giant slayer. They sing songs about him and his reputation as a mighty warrior spreads across Israel. David becomes best friends with Jonathan, who is one of Saul's sons. And as part of his reward for killing Goliath, David is given Michael, Saul's daughter, in marriage. So around this time, Saul begins to become extremely jealous of David, extremely jealous, and plots to kill him. First, he does it in a veiled manner by giving David one of the oddest assignments ever. So David is going to marry Michael, and David says, well, how am I going to do this? She's royalty. I can't pay the dowry on a princess. And Saul says, oh, don't worry about that. Just uh, take vengeance on the Philistines for attacking us, and I want you to take vengeance by bringing me back 100 Philistine foreskins. It's an odd assignment. Must have looked a little strange in the briefing packet. So Saul, Saul is thinking, there's just no way. He's going to be killed by the Philistines. There's just no way you can chop 100 men you know, without somebody killing you. And so he says, there's no way this is going to work. So David, being the overachiever that he is in the most completely unnecessary task of overachieving ever recorded, comes back with 200 foreskins. Puts him before Saul and Saul goes, you know, I, I think the Lord might be with this guy. He does that single-handedly and so Saul says, that's it, I'm going to kill him. I don't care who knows, I'm going to go for him publicly. Jonathan, the son of Saul, warns David, David flees for his life. And that takes him into the mighty men phase of his life. David is hiding out in a cave and around 400 men gather around him, make him their leader, follow him, swear loyalty to him, and David leads these men on all kinds of exploits and adventures, and they become legendary, David's mighty men. Their exploits are known as that of titans or demigods because they're doing feats that seem superhuman. David ends up during that phase with two different opportunities to kill Saul, but declines them out of fear of the Lord. David's view was, if Saul is king, then it's because the Lord wills it. And if the Lord wants to make me king, then the Lord will make me king. I don't need to make it happen. Finally, the day comes when Saul is killed in battle. David becomes king of Judah, which is only part of Israel because Israel is divided at that time. Through a series of battles, David unites Israel under his kingship and conquers Jerusalem where he rules. The Ark of the Covenant returns to Jerusalem and thus begins the most incredible season of peace and prosperity in Israel. David continues to be mighty in battle, supernaturally empowered by the Lord, and rules the people as a godly and righteous king. So are you understanding how David's rise, his ascendancy, his journey to the throne was supernatural destiny? It was epic, and the process took years, but the hand of the Lord was on David in a powerful, powerful way. And that's where we pick up our story today. David, the man, the myth, the legend, 
on the throne during the golden age of Israel. Let's turn to 2 Samuel 11. 2 Samuel 11, and we're going to begin in verse 1. It says this. It happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings, underline kings, when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Joab was David's nephew. He was the commander of his army as well. And Israel apparently has some military business they need to take care of. Now the norm would be for the king to ride out in battle with his troops because we're told, I had you underline it, it was the time when kings go out to battle. What's David? He's a king. His troops are going out to battle, but he's staying back in Jerusalem. Just his presence with his army would have given them a huge psychological advantage. Can you imagine seeing this army coming out and David is the one leading him? His exploits are known across the world, but he stays back in Jerusalem at his palace. We can only speculate, but all signs indicate David had decided he just had enough of the tough stuff of being king. He had, he had other people to take care of that now. He felt he deserved to just kick back, relax, sit this one out, have some me time. So write this down. It's your first fill-in. David's first mistake was neglecting his calling and purpose. His first mistake is neglecting his calling and purpose. You and I each have a calling and a purpose, and one of the hardest things about life is that that calling and purpose doesn't go away just when we get tired. If you're called to be a husband or a wife, you can't just say, uh, not this week. I mean, mo most people wish they could at one point or another, but we can't. That's why we made that commitment when we got married. If you're a, a father or a mother, you can't just say, not this week. It's the calling. It's the purpose that we're made for, and we can't just sit it out. And if we try to, things get messy very quickly. It's a big deal because it gives us insight into David's frame of mind. He was in a, I deserve this frame of mind. He didn't have a servant mentality anymore. He was in a, I'm underappreciated frame of mind and had become tired of certain aspects of his calling and purpose, like fighting battles. Verse two, it says, then it happened one evening while David's in this frame of mind, that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful to behold. This is the first historical account of creeping for those of you who are interested. <laughs> David didn't set out to do this. He stumbled upon this temptation. Most likely Satan had a hand in bringing this about. And Satan's timing as it usually is was perfect. He caught David in a serve me attitude rather than a servant attitude. And instead of walking away and fleeing that temptation, David took steps toward it. Verse three, so David sent and inquired about the woman and someone said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So who's Uriah the Hittite? Interestingly enough, the Bible lists him among David's mighty men in 2 Samuel. Their relationship went all the way back to the time David was an outcast being hunted by the king. He was one of the 400 that came around David. He was loyal and they went way back. He was one of David's most trusted military leaders and that's shown by the fact he lived right next to the palace. They had fought side by side. He's only out of town because he's fighting for David. 
Verse four, then David sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her for she was cleansed from her impurity and she returned to her house. Out of his serve me attitude, David just took what he wanted, Uriah's wife, and clearly assumed that would be that. Nobody would ever find out. A neat and tidy sin, but there's no such thing. And here's the disastrous plot twist. This is like a soap opera. Verse five, and the woman conceived... So she sent and told David and said, I am with child. <sighs> sort of imagine the scene like the soap opera one where she's standing with her back to David and the camera's coming over. I am with child. <laughs> and like us many times when we're caught in sin, we only sin more to try and cover up our sin. And as you may have discovered by now, that works approximately never. Verse six, then David sent to Joab saying, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war prospered. And David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah departed from the king's house and a gift of food from the king followed him. So here's what David's trying to do. When a dude comes back from battle, after sleeping around a bunch of stinky dudes for a few weeks, when he comes home to his wife, it's a safe bet what's on the agenda that night, if you can read between the lines. And David is thinking, you know, if that happens and Bathsheba has a kid, the math will be close enough that Uriah will be none the wiser. He'll just think it's his kid and everything will be fine. Verse 9. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. So when they told David saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, did you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house and get down at your house? Verse 11, and Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. So Uriah is such a man of honor that he refuses to indulge in the comforts of home while his fellow soldiers, his commanding officer, and the Ark of the Covenant are at the battlefront. He's making a gesture of unity with all of them because he's a good guy. He's an honorable man. And again, this doesn't convict David. David just says, oh, I just got to dig this hole a little bit deeper. Verse 12, then David said to Uriah, wait here today also, and tomorrow I will let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now when David called him, he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. And at evening he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. He's even an honorable drunk. So what does David do next? Verse 14. In the morning it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. In other words, put him in the fiercest fighting, pull all the other troops back, and leave Uriah to be killed. This is a murder plot. And just revealing the full wickedness of this, he gives these instructions to Uriah to give to Joab, making Uriah completely unaware he's carrying his own death sentence to the battlefront with him. Verse 16, 
So it was while Joab besieged the city that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew there were valiant men fighting for the other side. Then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the people of the servants of David fell and Uriah the Hittite died also. Joab under David's order sends a group of men into a fight he knows they can't win. David gets what he wants, Uriah's death. But not only that, did you notice that other innocent men were killed as well as part of that plot? Some of the people of the servants of David fell. These men died. They were sacrificed, collateral damage in David's conspiracy to cover his sins so that it would be more convincing. Verse 18, then Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war and charged the messenger saying, when you have finished telling the matters of the war to the king, if it happens that the king's wrath rises and he says to you, why did you approach so near to the city when you fought? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Yes, Jerubasheth that one. Was it not a woman who cast a piece of a millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Tebez? Why did you go near the wall? Joab is saying David might mention a previous situation that happened where somebody really important was killed by being too close to the city wall because people were able to throw things on them. So Joab says to the messenger, if he says that to you, if he gets mad, then just say to him this, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. In other words, this fight was suicide but David will be cool with it when he finds out that he got what he wanted, the death of Uriah and the evidence of his sin destroyed. Verse 22, so the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent by him. And the messenger said to David, surely the men prevailed against us and came out to us in the field. Then we drove them back as far as the entrance of the gate. The archers shot from the wall at your servants and some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. So encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. Have you ever had, I know you're not going to raise your hands on this, but that wicked feeling of euphoria when you think you've got away with a sin and you think, man, it's all come together. No one is ever going to know. That's what David is feeling at that moment. He's just thinking Bathsheba's now here with me. I'm about to have another kid. Everyone's going to think this is all above board. Everything's coming up David. And if you've ever had that giddy feeling of thinking you've gotten away with sin, then you know the truth. You, you haven't. Sin always has consequences. And that's why this chapter ends ominously with these words. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. If you were reading just this chapter about David's life, wouldn't you come away thinking, this guy's kind of a scumbag? I would. Wouldn't you come away thinking he's the absolute opposite of godly? Wouldn't you think him to be the last person in the world God would ever want to identify with? That's what I would think. So what happens next? Let's keep reading in verse one of the next chapter. Nathan is one of God's prophets. Let's read together. It says, then the Lord sent Nathan to David and he came to him and said to him, 
There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. So put yourself in David's shoes for a second. Because this is one of the most terrifying moments in the entire Bible, in my opinion. David is morally outraged by this story. And what does that tell us? Well, it tells us he's in complete denial about his own sin. He has deceived himself thoroughly. He has got to the point where he's justified his own sin by some twisted logic of saying, well, you know, the Lord works in mysterious ways. He's in complete denial about his sin. He still thinks that Nathan, the prophet standing in front of him, doesn't know what he's done. In his outrage, he cries out, the man who has done this shall surely die. Nathan looks right at David, points his finger at him, and shouts, you are the man. It's terrifying. Can you imagine that moment? You are the man. It's that kick to the crotch, sinking stomach feeling as the, the lie and, and all your denials and your justifications and the thought that you had got away with it just comes crumbling down around you. And there's no hole to dive into. You are just exposed. Nathan goes on and says, thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the son. So David said to Nathan, underline this sentence, I have sinned against the Lord. I've sinned against the Lord. Now notice this, because this is huge. What has David just done? He has confessed that what he has done is sin against the Lord. When David stops denying that he has sinned, look what happens. And Nathan said to David, underline this, the Lord also has put away your sin. The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. And write this on your outlines. Our sin can only be forgiven when we agree with God that it is sin. 
Our sin can only be forgiven when we agree with God that it is sin. Let me give you the most baseline example of this. It's being saved. Jesus died for every sin. We know that. Not just the sin of Christians. He died for the sins of every man, woman, and child who has ever lived, is alive, or will ever live. But salvation can only be received by those who will say, yes, I'm a sinner who needs that forgiveness. If a person says, I don't need forgiveness. I didn't need you to die for me. There's no sins that need to be taken care of. They can't receive that forgiveness. If you're a believer here today, it's because you agreed with God that there was an unsolvable sin issue in your life. You needed Jesus to die in your place. You agreed with him that, yeah, there, there is sin. I am a sinner that needs to be saved from that. When we fight God, when we say, no, no, it's not sin, we can't delude ourselves into thinking, he just forgives it anyway and we'll move on. If you're a believer, you believe in Christ, your sins are covered. But don't delude yourself into thinking that we can disagree with God and just move on like nothing has happened. It still needs to be dealt with. We come into the family of God by agreeing with the Lord that sin is sin. And there are consequences for David's sin. Heavy, heavy consequences. Verse 14. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. In other words, you made the Lord look bad. You are God's man and this is what you've done. The child also who is born to you shall surely die. Then Nathan departed to his house. And the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David and it became ill. David therefore pleaded with God for the child and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. So the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. Then on the seventh day, it came to pass that the child died and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead for they said, indeed, while the child was alive, we spoke to him and he would not heed our voice. How can we tell him that the child is dead? He may do some harm. When David saw that his servants were whispering, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore, David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. Why would the Lord take the life of a baby? First of all, you don't need to worry about that baby. That baby is with the Lord. And we know that because David believed the same thing. We'll see that in just a few verses. The Bible says that the Lord disciplines those he loves and those who are his children. David needed to experience the discipline of the Lord. And that discipline had to be serious enough that he would never, ever do that again. You may disagree, but there's a school of thought in parenting that you should let your children touch the hot stove once because they won't do it again. It's a serious enough consequence that they'll remember it unless they're small boys. They may do it again the next day. Who knows? <laughs> Don't forget, David was the king of Israel. He was the king of Israel. He was God's man on the earth. He occupied the most important political, military, and spiritual position on earth. And if the Lord knows that taking this child's earthly life is what it takes to make David rule again well, then it's the right thing to do because the position David occupies is that important. It's that important. Now notice what David does when he hears the news of his child's death. Verse 20. So David arose from the ground, 
washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Write this down and we'll unpack it. David understood the difference between God's discipline and God's wrath. He understood the difference between God's discipline and God's wrath. You see, God wasn't being a spiteful and vengeful God. God wasn't punishing David. He was being a good father who disciplines his children. There's a difference even between discipline and punishment. Discipline is always for the purpose of restoration and getting things on the right track. Punishment is to pay for what you've done. It's a very, very different thing. David remembered something hugely important that he was the one who was wrong here, not the Lord. This situation only existed. His child only died because of his sin. David showed that he understood he was under the discipline of the Lord because he wasn't bitter against the discipline of the Lord. He went and worshiped God. He understood God's not in the wrong in any part of this. All of this is only happening because of my sin. So write this down. When we receive the Lord's discipline in bitterness, we reveal a belief that our sin is not really that serious. When we receive the Lord's discipline in bitterness, we reveal a belief that our sin is not that serious. So when God brings discipline into our life and we're like, what kind of a loving God would let this happen? God is punishing me. What we're saying is, I don't deserve this. My sin doesn't deserve this. My sin's not that serious. And we forget the discipline of the Lord is because of what he has in store for us to do. We're going to reign with him on the earth and in eternity. He intends his children to occupy positions of extreme importance in the ages to come. And he's getting us ready for that. And so when we go, oh, this seems a little bit harsh, the Lord is saying, you're forgetting. You're going to rule with me one day. We got to get you into ruling shape here. We got to get you ready for that. So we need to be careful because when we're bitter against the discipline of the Lord, it's revealing something about our heart. We don't think our sin is that serious. It goes on and it reads, then he went to his own house and when he requested, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servant said to him, what is this that you've done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? Underline, I shall go to him. I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. David humbly accepts the Lord's discipline. He says, I'm not going to make a big scene or ask for your sympathy because this is right. The Lord's discipline in my life is good and right and I'm at peace with it. As a side note, this is one of the verses that points to us being able to recognize each other in heaven. David says, I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. The idea is that David believes he's going to see his son again in heaven and recognize him as his son. Verse 24, then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went in to her and lay with her. I didn't know that counted as comforting. Uh, so she bore a son. Then he called his name Solomon. Now, and then underline this, the Lord loved him. The Lord loved him. 
And I love that verse because it speaks to the Lord's desire to start over with us again and again and again. David's sin, the sin between him and the Lord, was dealt with. It was over on the spiritual side of things. Verse 25, and he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Jedidiah is just sort of the blessing name that Nathan gave Solomon. Do you pick up from that? David wasn't even bitter against Nathan, the prophet of God. When he has his son, Solomon, he wants to share that joy with Nathan, the prophet of God, the man of God. David doesn't look at Nathan and say, I never want to see you again because you brought this curse on my house. David knows, no, I, I brought this on my house. Nathan was just being the man of God, doing the will of God. And he says, I want to be around the man of God. David would rule Israel for many more years, and many of those years would be wonderful, but the end of his life fulfilled many of the words of Nathan as David dealt with the natural consequences of his sin. I'm not talking about God's discipline. I'm talking about the fact that his sons grew up knowing what he did. Everyone knew what he did. How do we know? We're still reading about it today. Everyone knew what he did, and many of his sons would follow his example. I want you to write this down because I think there's so many pastors out there not telling the truth in this area. Write this down. God's forgiveness frees us from the spiritual consequences of our sin. God's forgiveness frees us from the spiritual consequences of our sin. However, it does not free us from the natural consequences of our sin. And if you've catastrophically messed up in your life, God is not done with you. He has a plan for you. He has plans to use you for his glory and give your life significance and meaning. He has a plan to work around and even use some of your biggest failures. But you and I will deal with the natural consequences of our sin, the cause and effect of our sin, the way it affects us and affects other people for the rest of our lives sometimes. And I think that remains as a reminder that there are consequences for our sin. God doesn't have to get involved. There will naturally be consequences for our sin. So how did David end up with the legacy that he has? A man after God's own heart. The throne from which Jesus will rule, rule on the earth. Certainly the first part of his life was incredible. Certainly David had an unshakable faith in the Lord. He loved God's word. He loved to worship the Lord. But I think that what preserved his legacy was his genuine and sincere repentance. David knew how to repent. He is the model of how to repent. He took responsibility for his sin. He owned it. He wasn't angry at God for bringing discipline into his life. He didn't blame God for the natural consequences of his sin. And he sought the Lord and pursued a restored relationship with him. And we see all that in Psalm 51. If you want to flip over to Psalm 51, it's a psalm that David wrote while he was in the season of repentance following his indiscretion with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah. It's an incredible insight into the heart of David, what was going on in his heart and mind during this time. Psalm 51 begins with, have mercy upon me, O God, underline the word mercy. David begins by confessing he needs mercy. If you're asking for mercy, then you're admitting just by asking for mercy that you want to get something that you don't really deserve. You don't want to get what you deserve. You're saying, I know I deserve something horrible, but I'm asking you 
to forgive me for that. So you're acknowledging that you're wrong. And get this, he doesn't demand mercy because you can't demand mercy. You can't demand mercy. If you're demanding mercy, then you don't understand how mercy works. You're in the wrong. You don't get to demand anything. He's asking for it. According to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Over and over again, David's just confessing his need to be forgiven. Verse three, underline this, for I acknowledge my transgressions. I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. He's confessing that his sin has devastated his relationship with the Lord and he's acknowledging that when the Lord brings judgment and discipline, it's the right thing to do. He's saying everything you're doing, it's right because my sin deserves it. Verse five, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part, you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. How many of us care about what our sin does to our relationship with the Lord? For how many of us is that even a thought that our sin has damaged our relationship with God? It's put up a barrier. It's put up a wall. David cared deeply about his relationship with God and cared first and foremost that his sin had damaged the presence of God in his life. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will be converted to you. The idea is David saying, hey God, if you forgive me, it's going to affect other people because I'll tell them that you're a God who forgives. I'll call them to turn to you and experience the same forgiveness. Verse 14, Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. This is profound. This is back in the Old Testament time. And David's recognizing, hey, God doesn't desire an empty ritual. An empty ritual. God doesn't say, David, what I need you to do is go to church, walk up front during worship, and cry a bunch of tears on your knees in front of everybody. That's what I need. He doesn't say, I need you to go find a specially qualified official and make confession to that person because that's the ritual we do. He doesn't say, David, I need you to repeat this phrase over and over 70 times as penance for your sin. David's saying, God's not interested in a ritual. Even then, he's not interested in a sacrifice for sacrifice's sake. What does he say? He says, this is what God wants from us. Verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, 
you will not despise. He says, this is what God wants. He wants his people to be broken over their sin, to be genuinely repentant, to be grieving over the fact they have sinned, that they've damaged their relationship with the Lord, that they've stirred up devastating consequences in their life and the lives of those around them. David says, that's what God wants, a repentant heart. Repentance is not a trendy word, not a trendy word. If your life has gone off the rails, if you feel like it's beyond hope in your whole life or in one specific area, you feel like you've blown it. If you feel like you've messed up too badly for God to ever do something in that area or your, or your whole life, you need to know that God doesn't think that. God doesn't see you that way. He doesn't think that way about you. Your story is not over yet. It's still being written. The question is never, has God given up on you? The question is always, have you given up on God? And I want to end by simply reinforcing what genuine repentance looks like. For some of us, this may be the barrier that's holding us back from moving into the good things that God has planned for us. Some of us may need to repent of some things. And as we go through this, some of us may realize I've never really repented. I thought I had, but I've never really repented. So what does real repentance look like? Firstly, write this on your outline. It means owning one's sin. Owning one's sin. Your sin, my sin, is not somebody else's fault. You're not a victim that forced you to sin. It was your choice and it was your decision. It was my choice. It was my decision. The first thing is you have to own your sin and say, yeah, I, I did that and it's not anybody else's fault. Secondly, repentance means turning away from one's sin. We know this about our human relationships. An apology doesn't mean anything if the person goes right back to doing the same thing again. It's meaningless. The word repent doesn't mean sorry. It means turn away. It means going in the opposite direction. There are no guarantees, but repentance means being willing to do whatever it takes to stop that from happening again. Let me get really practical. If you're a guy... You've got issues with internet porn and you repent and you do nothing different. You're not repenting. You need to have accountability software on every electronic device you have to an accountability partner who's actually useful, not another guy who's gonna go, oh, that makes me feel better. I messed up the same way today. You need a real accountability partner. If you're serious about sin and you can't do that for some reason, some of you might need to go back to an old school indestructible Nokia phone that has a black and white screen. It'll still make phone calls. You'll still get text messages. Can't check Facebook, but the world will keep turning. <laughs> Unbelievably. So many times we're proven to be frauds when it comes to repentance because we're unwilling to do the things that will result in actually turning away. Relationships. Oh, I'm so sorry I've been sinning. Well, you may need to move out from living with your boyfriend. No, can't do that. Don't want to do that. Are you repenting? Are you ready to get married and make that right? No, but I am repenting. No, no, you're not. I have an addiction and I'm really sorry I'm addicted. Are you going to join a group? Are you going to get help? Are you going to 
eliminate the relationships in your life that keep leading you back to that thing, if you're not willing to do that, don't fool yourself. You can have an emotional Sunday. You can cry your eyes out. Have all the good intentions in the world. Good intentions are not enough. They are not enough. The Pharisees had good intentions. Repentance is real change, doing whatever it takes to turn away from sin. Thirdly, real repentance is welcoming the Lord's discipline and accepting the natural consequences without bitterness. Welcoming the Lord's discipline and accepting the natural consequences without bitterness. God's discipline is for your good. It's not to punish you, it's to shape you. And the natural consequences are just the result of our sin. We're to blame for that. Nobody else. We're to blame for that. Don't be bitter about dealing with the natural consequences of your sin. The best example I've ever found of this is anybody who's dealing with recovery. You know, if you have any interactions with anyone who's breaking an addiction, you know that the person who won't talk about their addiction, who won't talk about their past, who won't tell their story, they're not going to make it. They're not going to make it because they haven't owned it all yet and they're still bitter about the natural consequences of their sin. You can tell a person's really repented when they're willing to say, there's a lot of bad stuff in my life right now and it's because I've poisoned every relationship I've ever had or my sin has just devastated my life. It's not that the world is against me. It's not that I can't catch a break. It's the result of my own behavior. And repentance is saying, I, I don't want to keep sowing those seeds anymore. I'm tired of reaping that harvest. And it's welcoming the discipline of the Lord, saying, hey, I trust the Lord to bring whatever is needed into my life to shape me. And, and the longer you walk with God, the more you learn to trust that. You might start a business and it might not grow as fast as you'd like. Trust that the Lord is doing something. You might find yourself in a marriage where your spouse doesn't change as quickly as you'd like. Trust the Lord is doing something in you through that. You might find that your sin produces serious consequences. And I've seen people who have sowed 17, 18 years of bad seed and they're mad when a year later they're still reaping the harvest of those 17, 18 years. When you're repentant, you're honest enough to say, hey, I've, I've got to deal with this because I did this. It's only by the grace of God that there's anything good in my life. God's still gracious to me. Fourthly, it means accepting that mercy cannot be demanded. It is given. It is given. You can trust that the Lord will always forgive your sins when you confess them. But you can't trust that everybody else will do the same. And when other people in your life, in your world won't forgive you, won't give you mercy. You can't get bitter about that. They're not God. They're not as gracious as he is. And they don't actually owe you mercy. Mercy's a gift. That's why it's so amazing that we get it from God. It's not what God should do. Mercy is by definition not getting what you deserve. When we don't get mercy, all we're getting is the wages that we really deserve, the consequences we deserve. Our role is to repent. Our role is to repent. 
I like to share this because it brings clarity to restoration. We all want usually restoration in relationships, in life, in work. When we've messed up, when we're in the wrong, we want restoration. Restoration is an equation. You've got the equal sign and then you've got restoration. It takes repentance from the person who's in the wrong. It takes forgiveness from the person who's been wronged. Those two things together equal restoration. In your life, you will find yourself in times and places where you are the one who wronged another person and you repent, but you gotta understand without their forgiveness, there can't be restoration. If they won't forgive, that doesn't mean you're not responsible for your part. You're still responsible to repent, to apologize, to do everything you can to make it right, but you do not have the right to get bitter at them if they will not forgive you. You are responsible for your half of the equation and vice versa. You may be the offended one sometimes. Well, we probably all think we're the offended one more of the time. Your job is to forgive. If they won't repent, there can't be restoration. That doesn't mean you don't need to forgive them. When it's your job to forgive, you're responsible to forgive. When it's your job to repent, it's your job to repent. The other part of the equation's up to the other person, but you can't demand mercy. You can't say, God's forgiven me. You have to as well. You don't get to do that. That's between them and the Lord. And lastly, true repentance means seeking a restored relationship with the Lord. A restored relationship with the Lord. It's not repentance if you're like, I want to repent today for something to make sure that I'm going to get into heaven. Repentance ultimately means a restored relationship with the Lord. So if there's something today in your life that you need to repent of that's been a barrier, the final step of your repentance is saying, I've got a plan tomorrow morning to get up at this time, be in the word. Tomorrow morning at this time to be in prayer. I've carved out some time to make sure that I begin rebuilding that relationship with the Lord. It's just like a marriage if there's been something devastating between a husband and a wife. It's not enough to just say sorry and then keep ignoring the spouse. Saying sorry isn't gonna fix everything. Saying sorry is just bring in healing to the relationship so that you can begin to pour into it again and rebuild it. There's a difference between repentance and rebuilding. Repentance is the bridge that allows rebuilding to take place. But you gotta be focused on a restored relationship with the Lord, reprioritizing that relationship. No matter how bad you think you've blown it, God's not done with you. He is not done with you. And you can trust that. He's got a good plan for you in your future. But step one, if you've blown it, is repentance. Real repentance. And if you'll do that, your greatest failures do not have to define your legacy. I just think about what David did and his legacy was still, God said, a man after my own heart. That's who David is. I'm gonna rule from his throne one day because I love him that much. And we mustn't read that and go, awesome, David messed up, I mess up too, so I'm a man after God's own heart. <laughs> In between those two things is repentance, and that's what doesn't get taught a lot. In between those two things is genuine and sincere repentance. David humbly welcoming the discipline of the Lord and saying, it's right, it's good, I need this, and the Lord is just, the Lord is only ever good. So if you need to truly repent today for something, man, do business with the Lord. Do business with the Lord. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Jesus, thank you so much for your kindness to us. 
Thank you so much that on our worst day, in our worst moment, in our worst failure, it's not over. It's not over. In that moment, we do not find a vengeful, angry God who wants to punish his kids because he's mad with them. We find a father who is looking for his children to say, I, I messed up and I'm sorry. And we find a father who will go to work doing whatever it takes to bring restoration and healing to our lives and to lead us in the path that leads to life and health and wholeness. Father, I pray for any of us who have something we need to repent of. I pray for any of us who think we've repented, but we're realizing today we never really did. I pray for any of us who are searching for the strength to truly repent and take the steps that are necessary. Lord, would you release the grace of your Holy Spirit today? Would you just again expose to us what sin really is, how devastating it is, how we're not getting away with anything, we're only poisoning our lives. Help us to run to you. Say, Father, I've, I've made a mess here. I need your help to clean this up. Thank you that we can trust that we'll find the heart of the Father if we do that. Lord, Lord, we ask with sincere hearts where we need to be convicted, would you convict us, God? Don't let us be in denial like David was before you sent Nathan to him. Convict us, God. Free us. Bring us into the light so that we have nothing to be ashamed of, so that we can know that we're in right standing with you, God, that sin would have no power over us, Lord. I pray for courage and for boldness to confront sin in Jesus' name today. We love you, Jesus. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.